0: Welcome to Beyond the Arc, my name is Kevin O'Connor, I hope you enjoyed the opening three days of the NBA playoffs as much as I did. Today I brought on Rob Mahoney from The Ringer to talk about it all. Let's get going with Rob. Welcome to Beyond the Arc, Rob. How are you doing today?
1: I'm doing right. how are you, Kev?
0: I'm doing excellent, man. So on Saturday night, we saw the Celtics just absolutely dominate the Hawks, 112-99. I feel like so far this postseason through three days so far, Rob, the biggest winner is the Celtics. We see them go up 1-0, totally outmatch the Hawks. And despite his great moments, you know, in game one for the Sixers, Harden doesn't appear to have the quite the same burst off the dribble, which could be good for a round two matchup. And then the Bucks, they lose game one to the Heat. Giannis ended the Kumpo, hurts his tailbone. Sham Sharani has said on run it back on Monday that he could return in game two. It's more of a pain tolerance issue. But regardless, you know, you have Giannis potentially limited. Sixers with Harden, he says his Achilles is not going to get back to 100%. Feels like the Celtics right now have a leg up in the Eastern Conference.
1: Well, especially just because they were so commanding, right? You have all these contextual factors with these other teams but they came out, they played as, about as well as you could expect them to play in the first half of their game against the Hawks. Just absolutely walloped Atlanta. The defense looked tight. The offense moved well. They showed that, you know, although they did have some hiccups in the regular season, there were a lot of ebbs and flows with Boston's three-point shooting with some of their defensive focus. When they needed to buckle down, when the playoffs started, they're here. You know, this looks a lot like the team that got to the NBA Finals last year. And if that's what they're going to be all throughout this run, you have to love their chances.
0: Absolutely. And I think for them, you think about Boston's weaknesses last year, obviously dealing with, you know, up and down health for Robert Williams, Derek White in the postseason for Boston. All postseason long, he's getting, you know, completely sagged off of. He's a non threat. This year, it's been totally different for them. He's shooting 38.1% from three on 4.8 attempts compared to 31.2% all of last season. White, you know, he's taking pull up jumpers against Trey Young in that first quarter, attacking Trey. For the Celtics, you know, you got Robert Williams looking healthy and Derek White confident on offense. Some of their issues that we saw last year seem to have been resolved.
1: Yeah, and especially when you think about all of those potential shooters you could have sagged off of, right? It's not just White. It's Marcus Smart. It's when they're playing two bigs together. And yet, as we saw in this initial matchup, I mean, Atlanta's defense is spaced way out. They're giving a lot of respect to all of those shooters to the point that they aren't even really able to provide any help, any rim protection whatsoever. Guys like Jason Tatum and Jalen Brown are getting all the way to the rim. Something is going to have to give there, right? Like you're either going to have to live with some of your Derek White threes and your Marcus Smart threes and things like that, or you're going to have to live with giving like getting up wide open shots inside. And we've seen that that formula is just not tenable for the Hawks.
0: I mean, in that game one, we see Robert Williams just flying around for for Boston on the defensive end of the floor. And regardless of the series moving forward with Philadelphia, with Embiid or potentially Giannis, or if the Bucks, you know, do get upset at some point, you know, having that too big option is going to be pivotal for them. And now for Atlanta, I mean, they're down one 0 They're not favorites at all by any means in the series. It, it, what needs to happen, Rob, for the Hawks to actually make this competitive moving forward?
1: I mean, for as much as we are you know, just talking about their defense offensively, like they have to get more varied. They have to find ways to build off of what Trey is doing without being completely, completely reliant on what Trey is doing. That's always the Hawks problem, right? It's like, how do you activate every corner of your roster at the same time when you have a guy who you kind of want to have the ball in the hands of? You know, you want a playmaker like that to be in control. They just look totally locked up. They look like they're going to have problems all series long from initiation to finishing every step of the way on their offense. You know, as much as I would love to sit here and give you a laundry list of adjustments for them, I don't see it. Right? Like, I, I don't see the optionality here for the Hawks in terms of oh, you just make these quick pivots and your team looks totally different. This is what they are offensively, and this is what the Celtics are defensively, which is a team that can put Derek White on the ball, they can put Smart on the ball, they can put length on the ball, and can really stymie you.
0: Well, the Hawks are going to have to address that laundry list of adjustments during the offseason with Quinn Snyder, first-year head coach, installing a new system for the Bucks. Now they're down 1-0. Mike Budenholzer is going to have to make those adjustments mid-series. And in the past, we've seen with Coach Bud that's been up and down. Sometimes he's not making adjustments. Sometimes he's slow to do it. The real issue for them is the fact Giannis Antetokounmpo plays 11 minutes, takes a hard fall uh, against a block-slash-charge attempt right outside the, the restricted area. We don't know Giannis' status for sure yet. You know, as I said, Sham Sharania says he could play on Wednesday night with their game two. The one silver lining, regardless of Giannis' status, at least to me, Rob, is Chris Middleton. He scores 33 points on 20 shots with nine rebounds and four assists in game one. He looked more like himself than he has this entire series. So, you know, if the Bucks do get Giannis back, that has to at least be encouraging for them. And, but let's say they don't, let's say Giannis doesn't return. Do the Bucks have enough to still, you know, win this series against the Heat?
1: They do, but it's going to take some real doing, right? It's going to take incredible performances like this one from Middleton, but also Drew Holiday is going to have to shoot a lot better. Brooke Lopez is going to be, have to be much more activated offensively. And honestly, those things are going to be true even if Giannis comes back but is in kind of diminished form, right? Like there are a lot, there's a huge range of outcomes here from Giannis doesn't play in the series at all to he's out there kind of, you know, going through the motions, trying to contribute but is obviously limited. And they're going to have to prepare for all of those. The trouble with Milwaukee, so many of the adjustments that they can make come down to those three core guys, right? It's Lopez and Middleton and Holiday. Their role players are who they are. They're going to be spacing the floor. They're going to be trying to hold up on their defensive assignments. But you're just going to be asking Drew Holiday, Chris Middleton primarily, to play huge minutes, have huge responsibilities on both ends of the floor, and try to kind of cut back on those things however you can to kind of just get them even just a minute's rest.
0: You mentioned Brooke Lopez's offensive role that needing to be recalibrated. He shoots four of seven in the game, but only four shots inside the arc. You would think in a game that Giannis is playing only 11 minutes. He's sidelined. You would try to, as we saw over the course of the season, whenever Giannis was out, they turned up Brooke Lopez's interior offensive role. We saw him kind of reaching back to do some of the stuff that he did with the Nets when he was an all-star caliber post guy, not just shooting <laughs> threes and from the floor. Like, what what happened in that game one for Brooke to not get those interior touches? And would you expect that to change moving forward in the series?
1: It felt a little bit like a team getting stuck in its pregame game plan, right? Like still kind of thinking about their spacing and their roles as if Giannis was out there. When, as you're saying, if Giannis isn't playing, Brooke Lopez needs to be a, a very focal part of your offense, whether it's post-ups, whether it's roles. You know, we saw him and Drew Holiday have a good connection, a good connection for a few lobs. But also he's shown he can grab and go, you know, pump faking threes. He's driven really effectively this season. There's just no reason for him not to be doing that against a team as small as Miami. I know they're pesky. I know they have great hands. I know no one wants to drive like past Jimmy Butler because he's going to poke the ball loose. But you have to be willing to do that. You have to be able to do that. Milwaukee just badly needs his offense. And that felt to me, to your point about Coach Bud. This is a team that is not always great about adjustments in general, but especially is not always fast enough with in-game adjustment, right? Between games, we'll see if they go back to the drawing board, what they come up with for Brooke.
0: I mean, on the flip side of that, you have Eric Spolstra, who's been a master of adjustments throughout his entire coaching career, going back to the days with LeBron James. But they're going to be without Tyler Hero, who broke his hand in the game. Uh, You know, he plays only 19 minutes I, you know, we see Duncan Robinson actually make an appearance late in the game. You know, he's coming in. Maybe you have somebody like him. Miami does have depth, and they have different options coming off their bench. You'll see Max Strews perhaps play a bigger role. With Tyler Hero being out, that definitely hurts their offense, Rob. But do you think that could we saw in the play-in and throughout the season, sometimes Miami's back line when they would switch or play aggressive on defense, they're just so small. And, and Hero being a part of that as a, as a below-average defender. Is there any silver linings here to the Heat losing Tyler Hero and how it could aid their defense, or is this just you know overall a loss for them?
1: I think it's overall a loss. They're just a team that, despite how they looked in Game 1, can look really raggedy offensively on the wrong night, and a lot of that comes down to their three-point shooting. If Gabe Vincent and Max Struess and a lot of these role players are hitting – it's going to look awesome and they're going to put up 130 points like they did against a very good defense, even without Giannis in the Bucks. I don't know that I'm counting on that happening every game. Those shooters do tend to ebb and flow. Struess, in particular has had a, a pretty down season turned up lately. We'll kind of see where that ends up kind of leveling out. But ultimately, if they're not hitting like that, the offense isn't going to look as pretty. And if Milwaukee makes some kind of defensive adjustment, and I would expect, you know, Brook Lopez even just playing a little higher on the drop, for example, just a, a subtle adjustment. Coming a little closer to Bam Adebayo, who's like feasting on free throw line area jumpers in this game. If you can do something like that, you can really cut off the offense. And that's where missing hero hurts, right? Like Tyler Hero is a guy who, for better or worse, is going to get shots up. He has a broken hand. He's going to take that open corner three anyway, just to see if it goes in. They need a little bit of that shooting and abandon sometimes.
0: Robin, when we're back after break. We'll talk about the Cavs and the Knicks. All right, Rob, you saw my breakdown of the Cavaliers getting dominated by the Knicks on the boards. We saw the Knicks win game one, one hundred one ninety-seven on on the road against Cleveland. Hmm. That seems to be an issue for Cleveland uh, moving forward in the series. Rob,
1: can somebody box out Josh Hart? You know, oh I, I, you know, you expect Mitchell Robinson is going to be a factor on the glass. Julius Randle, especially with just the strength, the discrepancy with Evan Mobley, is going to be able to get to some. But you got to put a body on guards. And that's where Cleveland has problems sometimes, whether it's their guards getting blown by defensively. And then you have Evan Mobley or Jared Allen has to rotate and give up rebounding position, or they're just not boxing out their guy. They're not keeping their guy out of the lane. And it's true across the perimeter rotation for Cleveland. It's got to be a team effort.
0: Absolutely. I mean, it, you mentioned that Josh Hart rebound that he had over Donovan Mitchell. He's just like, you know, he looks like a running back, you know, just zigzagging past and juking him like in Madden. And and then you have the the size of Cleveland all year long. We're talking about Evan Mobley, Jared Allen, you know, two seven footers. They're huge. They're versatile. I felt like they looked kind of small compared to Mitchell Robinson and Julius Randle. Randall being wide and Mitchell Robinson being just absolutely enormous. I don't know, Rob. I mean, I think for Cleveland, they're not out of the series necessarily. Like their offense, you know, is struggling throughout the game, and yet they're still up late. Um, But there's just some of those edges that the Knicks have that perhaps I might have underrated actually. I picked, you know, Cleveland to win it. Um, I feel like I might have underrated the Knicks a bit heading into the series.
1: Yeah, I mean, it does feel like a series that's all about those edges, whether it's the literal margins of the game, your offensive rebounds, your loose balls, your transition breakouts, or it's kind of the margins of the roster, right? It's like New York has just a much deeper group that they can pull from to get reliable rotation minutes from a Josh Hart, for example, from an Isaiah Hartenstein. Versus Cleveland, you see the other side of that, where they're struggling to find a fifth guy, much less a sixth or a seventh guy. And a lot of their fate in the series is going to come down to do you get a good Karis LeVert game on this night? Do you get a good Dean Wade game on this night? And if they can t- like just get a l- tape enough of those things together to get an actual workable rotation, then they're going to be in business. But until then, it's just so much is already falling on their four core stars. And those guys played massive minutes in a loss.
0: Absolutely. You had Mitchell at 44 minutes, Garland at 43, Allen at 43, Mobley at 38. That's a lot of minutes for those guys. And as you said, you know, J.B. Bickerstaff, the Cavs head coach, is looking for a fifth guy. You got Isaac Okoro, who great defensive player, you know, heady cutter and all that, but limited shooter all year long, though. He shoots over 40 percent from three since around mid-December. The numbers look good, but he's getting left wide open a lot. He goes 0 for 4 in game one. He's going to have to either find his shot like he did during the season, but it's tough during the playoffs. You know, those closeouts are a little bit closer. The pressure is so much higher. And then if you go in with Jenny Osmond, yes, he goes two for three from behind the arc. But then you have him defending Jalen Brunson. It, It just feels like that fifth spot is an issue for the Cavaliers lineups right now.
1: I mean, it was an issue to the point that you're right. They did have Jetty Osmond defending Jalen Brunson, oh. and it was probably their best option, right? Like, it was... Oh, God, He, yeah. he well, was playing the like best. It? He was playing the best of those supporting guys, and at least he had some length at that matchup. But Acora is a great example of the kind of player the Cavs need, right? He is a guy who does play with a lot of physicality, has a tenacity to him, goes after some of the loose balls they could probably have used him in some of those rebounding scrums or battling with Josh Hart. It's just tough when you're going, like... High intensity, as you're mentioning, corner threes, wide open shots. Can you make two of four, one of four? Can you do enough, not even to make the Knicks guard you, but at least to punish them for leaving you?
0: Absolutely. And I think for the Cavaliers on the offensive end of the floor – For them, they score 97 points in game one. There's a lot of contributing factors from that. I mean, just the fact they shot 32% from three. But I think with the Cavs all year long, one of the things I liked about them is like how many layers to their offense they have, like with sets that they run, putting Mitchell at the elbow, you know, using double bigs. Like like they just have so many different ways that they attack you and create through Mitchell and Garland as their main sources of offense. But in game one, there was often times where I'm like, just – Push it up the floor and run a high pick and roll with Mitchell because you look at their numbers over the course of the season, according to Unpredictable, their time of possession ranks, they were 29th in time to shot after the opponent made a basket, 22nd after misses, 25th after turnovers. So even when they're out in transition, they're moving slow, never mind being, you know, 29th after the opponent makes a basket. So I think for Cleveland moving forward in the series, you know, Mitchell takes 30 shots. Um, and yet I come away from that game feeling like that you can get even more from him just by stripping things down and speeding up a little bit and just getting it to some high pick and roll with Mitchell. Is there is there anything that you think is contributing to some of these real stagnant stretches for the Cleveland offense, and do you do you see any uh, micro-adjustments they could possibly make moving
1: forward? Well, the spacing is a real thing, right? Like, if we're talking about defenses leaving guys like Acora or leaving basically anyone you plug in there in that fifth spot, the combination of that plus playing two fairly traditional bigs at the same time is going to gum things up, right? That's going to make it hard for Mitchell to get all the way to the basket or Garland to get all the way to the basket sometimes. I'm totally with you on transition. There's a lot of low-hanging fruit there. And that sounds like Darius Garland's music to me. You know, Mitchell is the most explosive athlete on the team. Obviously, is incredible in transition, not only as a finisher, but drawing fouls. But he's just going to have such a heavy workload. You can kind of see him in this game pacing himself early, trying not to get like, too fatigued because he knows he's going to have a long night. He knows he's going to get up 30, 30-something shots. Garland has to be able to push in those situations too. That's where he has to, especially as a smaller guard, take advantage of some of the space you have. Take advantage of the fact that all the bigs are not going to be in the paint necessarily if you sprinted up court. But the Cavs guards have to be on top of that stuff. They have to be able to get those points because honestly, they did enough defensively, even giving up all those rebounds to the Knicks to win. They just couldn't score.
0: And I think, you know, along those same lines with Darius Garland, Rob, this, this entire, you know, game one, 101-97, low score, you know, it's the opposite of what we saw on that same night with the Warriors and Kings where it's just flying up and down the floor. But that mixed Cavs game, I thought, I thought it kind of illustrated which was a the theme in most of the games, not all, but most of the games so far where, you know, free throws are, are down. 23.5 free throw attempts were the average over the course of the full retro season, down to 20, 21.4 over opening weekend. The Knicks are playing, like grabbing and whole defense. Think the physicality, you know, right away is just apparent, both in the play and the playoffs so far. And just the dramatic difference that is for offenses to have to deal with between the season
1: and the playoffs, too. It's so different, right? And you can especially see it with these young teams on the other side of it, right? Cleveland. Did look a little bothered by some of that physicality. And while we don't think of the Knicks as being this team entrenched with veterans, you know, Jalen Brunson has some playoff runs under his belt. Julius Randle has seen some of these battles before, and moreover, is just a like a bulldozer, right? Whenever basically whenever he wants to be. And we saw him get away with some of that contact. Every game's going to be officiated a little bit differently, but you're right, the line overall is going to allow that holding. It's going to reward the teams that are willing to go after it. It's going to reward, as we saw not only in this game, but with Sacramento, with Philadelphia, go after the offensive glass, you know, really dig in, get into the scrape and try to come up with some extra possessions because the opportunity is there. If you're willing to, to bump people a little bit to grab and hold, you're going to come up with some rewards.
0: Rob, when we're back, we're going to talk about the real MVP, Austin Reeves. <laughs>
1: well, Rob, the Lakers
0: have a new start, don't
1: they? <laughs> You know, he's been hiding in plain sight the whole time. What were we waiting for? Why do we ever think that they needed to trade for Kyrie Irving or anyone else? Austin Reeves is here.
0: Austin Reeves right now averaging 16.5 points, five assists per game, low turnovers, great efficiency ever since the trade deadline. I mean, what he did in game one, granted for people who are watching the Lakers for the first time, you know, it's playoffs, more eyeballs. You're like, Austin Reeves. But he's been doing this for, you know, two months now for the Lakers. And the cool part about that, though, is seeing LeBron James and Anthony Davis just move out of the way. Like They were just picking on what they felt was the most exploitable matchup against that Grizzlies defense that was switching. And they just said, oh, we'll face your drop coverage instead. And LeBron and AD let Reeves go. This is
1: a crazy thing to think, but it was a very LeBron-esque approach from Austin Reeves in the sense that you're Right. Find the matchup you like, spam that button over and over and over because you're getting great looks out of it. And I think what made this performance particularly sensational for Reeves is we've seen him in games, you know, dupe people with pump fakes, create a lot of contact, get to the free throw line over and over and over. He's been selling people with fakes all season long. This wasn't really that, right? It was just sensational passes, incredible shot making against a really good defense, right? Like a a Memphis team that even given its injuries, even given its situation, should have been able to guard those actions. Has a lot of really tough, really good players, and yet they just had no answers for anything Austin Reeves was dishing out.
0: Well, and I think the tough thing for the Lakers, I mean, you got Austin Reeves, you know, ending the game. He has 23 points. He finishes them off in the fourth quarter. But then you have guys like Rui Hachimura who have 29 points on 11 of 14. He's looking like you know Japanese Jordan pulling up from mid range. It was like that. That's what happens in the playoffs. There's surprises you know, on a game-to-game basis. And I think for the Lakers, this is why I was so high on them after the deadline. It's why I continue to be high on them now in the postseason. You know, I picked the Suns to go to the finals, you know, prior to the playoffs beginning. We'll see about that after they get, you know, lose to the Clippers in game one. But the Lakers, they just have, you know, LeBron played a sloppy game. And AD, you know, he was dominant, but he misses a little bit of time. He gets hurt. And yet I feel like this Lakers team after the deadline with D'Angelo Russell, Austin Reeves and his new role, you know, guys like Rui, they just have different ways that they can beat you on offense. And they have different guys who can be competitive on defense, you know, like Dennis Schroeder being a big part of that as well. This Lakers team is just really deep, and I, I felt like in that game one, that's what gave them a big edge over the Grizzlies and, and why I don't feel great about Memphis moving forward in the series, even you know if John Morant is able to return on Wednesday night for game two.
1: Yeah, I mean, the Lakers have a good shot, right? This, this was kind of a coin flip series, I think, for a lot of people coming in to begin with. If John Morant is hurt, that changes the math a lot, and even in this game, I don't know how we could expect Jaron Jackson Jr. to play better than he did in game one. One of his best games ever as a pro, especially offensively, what he was able to get done inside. And yet it wasn't quite enough for exactly the reasons you outlined. The Lakers just had enough of their supporting cast hitting where they had the complete picture. They had the whole profile. When I think about the Lakers, I do still have some skepticism overall in terms of this is a real contender, right? And some of that is, you know while Austin Reeves dominating while LeBron and AD watch is kind of a cool moment. You're right. Like LeBron was really sloppy in this game and also just kind of stepping back and taking it easy on a lot of possessions in a way that makes me worry a little bit about the state of his foot. It makes me worry about his ability to crank it up as often as he's probably going to need to, because while you get one good Rui Hachimura game every three or four, you also have the other two or three games to contend with. And that's kind of the way a lot of this Lakers roster goes is you're going to get, some good games from Rui or Dennis Schroeder or D'Angelo Russell. If you can string enough together, you can win a series like this. But against further competition beyond this series, let's assume maybe we're fast forwarding too far. But, you know, e- even going in this series, if the Grizzlies are able to get a little healthier with Jawback, back, I'm not counting on all those guys delivering every night
0: i think that's fair i mean lebron is in his late 30s at this point he's coming off a major injury you know 80 made a glass you know he comes back in game one but it's only inevitable until he's you know screaming on the floor again at some point you know it's it seems like for the lakers it's going to be health related whether those guys are on the floor a or not with how it influences their production and for the grizzlies right now though rob i think You can say the same thing. We see Ja Morant's hand, you know, he bends backwards pretty much, and he says after the game he's really in a somber mood. He says he's, you know, unlikely to play Wednesday night. We'll see, you know, what comes out tomorrow when that report comes out, if he is indeed going to be able to play. But even with Ja, I watched that game, and you mentioned Jaron Jackson, how magnificent he was. Like, he's, you know, good as always on defense. He has 31 points on offense, scoring every which way. I come away feeling like – Steven Adams, his you know, him not being out there for Memphis is a problem right now facing that Lakers size, their ability to get into the paint and without Adams out there. You have Jaron Jackson playing drop defense late in the game rather than have him in a position where he's roaming off ball, wreaking havoc. That's why Jaron Jackson Jr. was on so many defensive player of the year ballots this year was because of that primary role next to Steven Adams. And that's what I feel like is really missing for the Grizzlies right now. And there's no word on Adams. You know, Wode reported that he's unlikely to return in the series. I I worry about Memphis without Adams out there, Rob. I I think he is a critically important player that's gone underrated this season.
1: Yeah, you're either asking Jaron Jackson Jr. to do what you described, doing something he's good at but not great at in terms of playing a more traditional drop style, being your on-ball or at least on-screener pick-and-roll defender, or you're playing a lot of Xavier Tillman. And all due respect to Xavier Tillman, works his ass off, good post-defender, complete non-threat offensively. The Lakers are And that's
0: because Brandon Clark is out. And and that's Br- why you're even playing Tillman. It's not just Adams, it's no Clark.
1: You're absolutely right. Like those are piling up and overlapping and you can see the cascading effects there to the point that you're either playing a lot of Tillman or I mean the alternative there is what you're going to throw in Santi Aldama, like the Grizzlies are already kind of scrunched up in terms of what the rotation looks like in a way that is probably healthy for them, right? Like, you don't want to run too deep into your bench, even if you do have a good bench. You need to play your star's big minutes. But you need Steven Adams. Like, he was the guy who was kind of the backbone of this team, certainly in terms of rebounding, gives you a lot as a screener. But defensively, he was so important for them.
0: Where do you stand on the debate that kind of was sparked on Sunday night uh, between banning the charge? We Mm. see Ja get hurt, uh, Giannis get hurt in similar situations. Recently, Embiid had a really scary fall, you know, when a player was attempting to take a charge against him. You know, there's thousands of – blocks slash charges that are attempted you know over the course of the season it's a tool for defenses to get stops around the basket otherwise you'd see Giannis put up actual Wilt Chamberlain numbers Uh, but where do you stand on that Uh, do you think there's a better approach for the NBA from a rules standpoint um, than what they are currently have Uh, what do you think Rob
1: yeah I, I think the incentives are pretty busted to be honest with you because right now defenders that's what they're told to do that's what they are taught to do that's what the rules have instructed them to do is stand in front of these guys who are launching themselves at the rim get under them undercut them late if you have to and you might still get the call and you know there's there's gray area with this stuff for example John Morant's injury I thought AD was in legal guarding position John Morant's trying to jump over him that's kind of one version of that case the other one I think is what we saw with Milwaukee and Miami which to me Giannis is off his feet On one foot, going up, already started his upward motion. Kevin Love is sliding underneath him in a way that's really dangerous. And so if that's where the incentives are in the league, that's a huge problem. I think there needs to be room to legislate offensive fouls. Obviously, you push a guy off, you lower your shoulder, you're running straight into them. There's room to call that an offensive foul. But the way the charge rule is set up now, and whether it's due to the location of the circle or just the way it's officiated, we're just getting guys hurt left and right, plain and simple.
0: So you would change the rule then?
1: Absolutely. I think it unquestionably needs to be changed.
0: There were players on NBA Twitter this week I saw come out and respond to multiple articles and tweets saying, like, what do you want us to do? You know, like, you remove this from us? Like, what are we supposed to do? Defend at the rim? Do you think perhaps it's... Removing the charge, you know, maybe moving the restricted area away from where it currently is, the the block charge circle. Is it other rule changes, you know, that are that come attached to changing that rule, like allowing more hand checking? Is there anything else that needs to be revised in order to change the block charge? Because I personally think just removing the block charge, like I said, Giannis is going to average 45 (laughs) points per game. You know, Jokic is going to be even more dominant. Like, all the, like, it's just, like, it's going to be absurd what players would be able to do around the basket without that. Is there anything else that could kind of, you know, uh, balance things out a little bit more?
1: I think the hand checking is a great counterbalance, right? I'm all for more physicality on the perimeter. I'm all for, frankly, calling more fouls inside. I think post players in general get a really raw deal in terms of the physicality that's allowed. There's just a total incongruency in terms of you what's allowed, more
0: fouls? More whistles? let's <laughs> oh, see Mark
1: Davis more wrong. <laughs> <loud? laughs> that's not what I'm aiming for necessarily. <laughs> but look, I'm, I'm all for allowing more contact on the perimeter if it means safer play inside. We, we talk about the charge circle as if it's something that's always existed, right? As if it's not just a creation that the NBA introduced to try to protect defenders. There were errors of basketball before it. There would be errors of basketball after it. I think there's lots of ways to legislate and to, to create a safer playing environment. I like I just don't understand why we would want a rule that rewards sliding under someone who's in the air with no excess penalty other than, oh, they might shoot a couple free throws and then have to leave the game like Giannis did. Actually, no, Giannis didn't even get the free throws. I take that back.
0: Sure, he didn't. Yeah, I mean, I'll tell you what, Rob. I I think the NBA needs to take a long look at a lot of rules – and they they should not hesitate to make dramatic changes. We see what's happened in baseball this year with the pitch clock. How even you know traditionalist baseball fans are like, oh, oh it's this, this pretty good. <laughs> it's pretty nice. So I think for the NBA, like they should not hesitate to making changes to the rules that they feel improves the aesthetic of the game, which brings in more fans, draws more interest, brings in more money to the players. I mean, I I think the NBA needs to be as innovative as they think to improve the game. And it does start with the rules. Uh, Let's move on to the nuggets and T wolves, you know, Denver dominates game one. Jokic is scoring all his points inside the paint, despite going against the Gobert cat front line. He has that crazy spin moves, post up, oh, drive, whatever it was. Oh my goodness gracious. One of the most beautiful moves I've seen in the entire se- uh, season. This series feels over already, Rob.
1: You know, my instinct is always to pump the brakes, you know, like let's give Minnesota a chance. Let's wait and see. What do you do? with a Nuggets performance like that. Because if the, if Denver comes out and plays like this, with this at least this kind of focus, I don't think they played a perfect game. Certainly saw slow starts from guys like Jamal Murray, for example. Bits and pieces of this game where things went off the rails for them a little bit. But overall, they were just in complete control of it. And that's what this series is, right? This is a 1-8 for a reason. This is often what these series look like. Minnesota has been a mess, has not really been able to figure out or establish any kind of consistency all throughout the year They've shown they can lose any kind of game. They've shown they can blow leads. I don't know why we would expect them to come in and beat Denver. I don't know why we would expect them to beat them even a couple times in the series. This feels like we're we're destined for a dominant win for the Nuggets.
0: And then with the Suns and the Clippers, Clippers go up 1-0 on the road ahead of their Game 2 on Tuesday. Russell Westbrook has the greatest 3-for-19 performance in the history of basketball I mean, like the defense he played, the hustle, the blocks, the steals, the you know the deflection off of Devin Booker, and the closing moments as Booker's whining to the referees. Hey, man, you know I've been a Russ hater for a long time. I've also had a little bit of belief in him being able to do what he's done to uh, in that game one. It was cool to watch, Rob. It was really cool to watch Ru- uh, Russell Westbrook do all the little things.
1: Just. So many incredible moments from him. And you, honestly, you get those from Russ a lot, but I thought overall his level of defensive intensity and defensive attention to detail, something we don't always attribute to Russell Westbrook, a guy who over his career will wander away from a play, will gamble, will sit and watch on the perimeter a little bit if he gets caught behind a play. He's doing flyby contests behind Kevin Durant, bothering the hell out of him on his release. He's chasing down rebounds. He's fighting for every opportunity sensational game like again in every dimension other than the fact that he just could not hit shots or really convert around the rim at all but came up with so many (laughs) of those huge plays like how do you how do you fall to showing like that
0: you mentioned uh, his contest against Kevin Durant I mean granted Kevin Durant ends up with 11 assists in the game you know he has you know 27 points only 15 shots you know Aiton has 16 you know I think for Phoenix it goes without saying their depth is a concern. You look at their bench. You get Landry Sham and Ish Wainwright, a Kogi playing only seven minutes. Jock Landale with eight. Like their depth is concerning. But Kevin Durant getting fifteen shots to eight and sixteen, like I, I, that, that can't happen in the series. I, I don't think Phoenix is going to win if they continue to give Kevin Durant that type of usage.
1: Well, especially those two things in conjunction, right? If Kevin Durant's going to play forty-five minutes, he needs to shoot more than fifteen times, even with the free throw attempts in addition to that. The depth is, is a concern, right? And, and I think there, it was for a lot of us coming in, whether you're pinpointing a specific guy in the rotation, whether you're saying, like, are you know, is Josh Akoge going to be able to hit his shots? Is Tory Craig going to be able to hand up against playoff scrutiny? You know, Bismack Biombo or Jock Landau, are these guys really playable in the playoffs? Moreover, it was pretty clear from this game that Monty Williams does not trust those players, does not really trust anybody other than really the core starters plus some time from Tory Craig. Landry Shaman, I thought, gave them some, some decent minutes and certainly some, like, very important pressure release baskets in transition. Just, like, getting out to get an easy bucket now and again in a really hard-fought game. But Williams is going to have to find someone he can trust on this roster, right? Like, this is, this is sustainable to a point, but you can't be playing Chris Paul and Devin Booker and Kevin Durant huge minutes every single game.
0: I mean, on the other side of that, you see Ty Lue. He can trust Kawhi Leonard, who right now looks like the best player in the entire series, if not the entire league right now, after that game one opening three days of the NBA playoffs. Rob, I appreciate you joining me today on Beyond the Arc.
1: Thanks, Kev. Anytime.